When I write one of these episodes, often the more interesting ones, at least for me, are those in which the themes emerge late in the process. In this sense, what I am creating is an artistic endeavor. I don't know where it is going until it gets there, and then I reconsider the whole essay in terms of whatever I have discovered. This is a gratifying process when it works, because I learn something interesting from it. The thing I learn is an emergent property of the thoughts I put down. This is the 54th episode of The Hard Problem by Jesse Winters. I want to thank you for listening. It has been almost a year since I began this project. In the meantime, I have slowly accrued an audience. But I could seriously use your help. If you like the podcast, please recommend it to others in your circle. Give it positive reviews. If my work has interested or amused or otherwise made an impact, for better or worse, all I want from you in return is that you help me extend its reach. Thanks again. Consciousness exists in the present. We see, we hear, we feel sensations in the body, we have thoughts and emotions too. Whichever varieties of qualia are in this moment making up your composition, these are what it is to be you in this moment. Yet there seems to be something further to the story and it deserves exploration. There is a sense of continuity which weaves into a common strand the consciousness that used to be and the one that occurs right now. Either you are an ongoing thing or you are not, and I'm sure you have noticed that it seems as though you are. Whatever gives you this sense is responsible for the feeling of who you are, a sense that you are not just momentary experience, but an ongoing self across experiences. Recall that I presented an episode on the topic of the self, and I am not looking to rehash that discussion here. I concluded in that episode that there are two senses of self that can be distinguished. One of those may be an illusion but the other is the undeniable thing that Descartes meant when he said, I am. The first sense of self is what I called the self-construct. The second, undeniable form, is the self as point of view. Even in the profound, ego-dissolved condition of a DMT-type psychedelic trip, the self as point of view is necessarily present, or there would be no experience of the trip. So let's not get tangled up on the question of self. What I'm interested in contemplating here is what it means to be a continuous conscious being. I've discussed this with you before, but I have a new angle of attack to muster, that of disposition. Let us first consider what it is for something, never mind consciousness, anything, to exist across time. Let's rule out consciousness and take an inanimate object for a start. A rock, a piece of furniture, a machine, it doesn't matter. Let's take these three examples in ascending order of complexity. First. The rock. It is composed of matter. The matter is conglomerated without much organization. If we place that rock outside in the landscaping, where we can walk past it day after day, it will undergo little observable change. But if we shoot it into space, it will travel as a single system, and the effect it might have upon landing on the surface of the moon, for example, will be different than if it were configured differently, say if we broke it up into a dozen smaller pieces and launched those. In observance of physical laws, we could break it up into pieces or drill a hole into it, and we would neither create nor destroy matter, though we would assuredly destroy the rock. The rock would then no longer be a system. We would no longer describe it as an object. Now let's take the piece of furniture, a sofa. This is a system constructed out of materials, wood, screws, fabric, and so on. It doesn't have moving parts, so it can't be described as a machine, but it is a single system. If we move it, it moves all together. And if we place it in another room or out on the front lawn, it behaves the same way. It's the same continuous couch for as long as we keep it, though it will accumulate wear and stains and whatnot. 
Having discovered bedbugs in the folds of its upholstery, since it is now on the lawn, we can douse it in gasoline and set the thing ablaze. Once again, the sofa as an object will cease to be. Much of its material will leave as smoke, and much will precipitate as ash, but we will not have destroyed matter. Third, let's have a machine. A car, for example. This object is much more complex than the previous two. It has many moving parts, which can carry out a number of different functions. It is, however, nothing but matter which has been engineered to acquire its useful configuration. Once again, it is a single system. When we park the car and go to work, returning again at five past five, the very same object is discovered. Or, if it is not, we can reasonably assume that it has been stolen or towed away or otherwise commandeered to another location. Nevertheless, the same car persists across time, at least until it is destroyed or disassembled. But the car provides us with an opportunity to make some further observations about the continuity of things. Suppose across its career that the car has had substantial repairs and replacements. It's been through tires and brakes and headlights, a new fender, a new windshield. Maybe the transmission or even the engine has been replaced. These repairs have accrued over years, so the car has gone into the shop and come back out a day later, continuing to provide its owner with transportation across decades. In principle, the car might have every last part replaced over time, and yet the system as a whole continues to operate. If you are inclined to question the identity of the car in this case, then think about what is meant by a river. You and I know perfectly well what a river is, don't we? It is a body of water that flows along a low point in a terrain. It isn't a thing in the material sense, though. The water today isn't the water tomorrow. That is all pissed off down the hill. It isn't even the crease in the earth along which the water moves because erosion soon causes shifts in the river's shape. If we were to take an aerial photograph every year for a thousand years, we might see the river whipping about in the manner of a snake. But a snake is a thing. The body of the snake is one and the same body as it slithers from place to place. In the same way, we cannot so clearly define the river. I submit that the river is a system. The system persists across time. The matter of which it is composed does not. As we have seen, even an object is fundamentally a system. Finally, let's consider a human organism. In common with the car, the replacement of pieces and parts literally occurs over the lifetime. Atoms and molecules are broken down and excreted as they are being replaced through the continuous consumption and digestion of food. Noticing this does not necessarily bear on the continuity of self, but it is certainly relevant to the continuity of an organism. Just like the car, the human body is one and the same system, since only a small fraction of its constituents are being replaced at a given time. The system persists, therefore, for the length of a human lifetime without missing a critical breath of air or a heartbeat in the meantime. You may be wondering what the point of this discussion has been with respect to consciousness. I'm getting there, I promise. I want to share something with you from Bertrand Russell to bring the conversation around to the topic of disposition. It's worth knowing that the term he uses, nemic, refers to past experience, as in learning and memory. Russell writes, quote, Whenever the effect resulting from a stimulus to an organism differs according to the past history of the organism, without our being able actually to detect any relevant difference in its present structure, we will speak of nemic causation, provided we can discover laws embodying the influence of the past. In ordinary physical causation, as it appears to common sense, we have approximate uniformities of sequence, such as lightning is followed by thunder, drunkenness is followed by headache, and so on. None of these sequences are theoretically invariable, since something may intervene to disturb them. In order to obtain invariable physical laws, we have to proceed to differential equations, showing the direction of change at each moment. 
not the integral change after a finite interval, however short. But for the purposes of daily life, many sequences are to all intents and purposes invariable. With the behavior of human beings, however, this is by no means the case. If you say to an Englishman, you have a smut on your nose, he will proceed to remove it, but there will be no such effect if you say the same thing to a Frenchman who knows no English. The effect of words upon the hearer is anemic phenomenon, since it depends upon the past experience which gave him understanding of the words. If there are to be purely psychological causal laws, taking no account of the brain and the rest of the body, they will have to be of the form not X now causes Y now, but ABC in the past, together with X now, cause Y now. For it cannot be successfully maintained that our understanding of a word, for example, is an actual existent content of the mind at times when we are not thinking of the word. It is merely what may be called a disposition, i.e., it is capable of being aroused whenever we hear the word or happen to think of it. A disposition is not something actual, but merely the nemic portion of a nemic causal law." Unquote. So a disposition, according to Bertrand Russell, is the nemic portion of causation. In other words, a disposition has something to do with past experience. He specifies at the beginning of the passage I read that nemic causation is that part of causation which is dependent on the past but which we are unable to detect as differences in the present structure. We have to remember that at the time the lecture from which these statements are quoted was written, nothing was known about the neural mechanisms of learning and memory. I'm not saying that we have all the details, or even a substantial minority of the details, but neuroscientists like Eric Kandel, who won the Nobel Prize for his work, have established that changes in neuronal molecular structures are an important component. There actually are detectable differences in the structure, and there certainly are many more that will be detected. This implies that dispositions do not exist, as laid out by Russell, but perhaps the error is on the other side of the equation. Dispositions occur, but they are dependent on the present structure, in contradiction to Russell's earlier suggestion. Consider the machine example, the car. A car just off the assembly line and brand new at the dealership presumably functions according to design. If you turn the key, the engine kicks on. If you flick the switch, the headlights turn on. If you depress the brake pedal, the brakes engage and prevent the wheels from turning. All of the cars of this make and model come out of the factory in this way. The would-be nemic characteristics are those dependent on the particular history of a given car. It might eventually have rust or other wear that distinguishes it from another that was once just like it. It might, by chance or deliberate sabotage, be disposed, as it were, to have its brake line snap, and therefore to fail to respond to stepping on the brake pedal and thereby prevent its innocent driver from careening into a freight train at 65 miles per hour. The particular condition of having a vulnerable brake line, which now snaps apart, is dependent on some historical experience, if you like. No, I'm not suggesting that the car is possessed of a conscious mind. Right away, we see that whatever we are describing as nemic in this case is an entirely physical fact about the system that is the car. In the case of the human brain, another physical system, we should not expect to find any disposition which is not a physical correlate of some part of that system. This is not lost on Russell. He says a few paragraphs later in the lecture, quote, the only reason that could be validly alleged against nemic causation would be that, in fact, all the phenomena can be explained without it. They are explained without it by Simon's engram or by any theory which regards the results of experience as embodied in modifications of the brain and nerves. But they are not explained, unless with extreme artificiality, by any theory which regards the latent effects of experience as psychical, rather than physical. 
those who desire to make psychology as far as possible independent of physiology would do well, it seems to me, if they adopted nemic causation. For my part, however, I have no such desire." Unquote. In fact, psychology must ultimately be directly attached to physiology. There are clearly dispositions, though. Thinking produces thoughts. Those thoughts which are not currently being thought are not thoughts. They are dispositions to thought. So if I say to you, Albert Einstein, assuming that you are familiar with the name, some thoughts are likely to occur to you. Perhaps you imagine the famous photograph in which he was sticking out his tongue. Perhaps you think E equals MC squared, or God does not play dice, or any number of other quotes, discoveries, or facts about the man that you were exposed to in your life. You weren't thinking about any of those things before I mentioned Dr. Einstein, but clearly you were disposed to think of those things in the event that I did bring him up to you. Whatever thoughts or images or feelings were thereby made to appear as contents of your present consciousness must have been instantiated somewhere in your brain by some physical mechanisms. Accordingly, if your brain were sufficiently injured or diseased, you might cease to have such dispositions with regard to any mention of Albert Einstein. But I suggest that such dispositions are not any different when it comes to other physical systems. Even the rock, in our earlier example, might be carried to a high precarious place where it is now disposed to fall if provided sufficient insult. A man, perhaps the one who carried it to its present perch, might cry, Fuck you, rock, and poke it with a stick. Daniel Dennett proposed that consciousness as we know it does not exist. We do not have qualia. There is nothing that is different between us and machines. I always prefer to read about Dennett in the words of John Searle rather than reading Dennett himself, at least where consciousness is concerned. So allow me to share a bit from the mystery of consciousness. Searle writes, quote, If you were asked what is the essential thing about the sensation of pain, I think you would say that the second feature, the feeling, is the pain itself. The input signals cause the pain, and the pain in turn causes you to have a behavioral disposition. But the essential thing about the pain is that it is a specific internal qualitative feeling. The problem of consciousness in both philosophy and the natural sciences is to explain these subjective feelings. Not all of them are bodily sensations like pain. The stream of conscious thought is not a bodily sensation comparable to feeling pinched, and neither are visual experiences, yet both have the quality of ontological subjectivity that I have been talking about. The subjective feelings are the data that a theory of consciousness has to explain, and the account of the neural pathways that I sketched is a partial theory to account for the data. The behavioral dispositions are not part of the conscious experience, but they are caused by it. The peculiarity of Daniel Dennett's book can now be stated. He denies the existence of the data. He thinks there are no such things as the second sort of entity, the feeling of pain. He thinks there are no such things as qualia, subjective experiences, first-person phenomena, or any of the rest of it. Dennett agrees that it seems to us that there are such things as qualia, but this is a matter of a mistaken judgment we are making about what really happens. Well, what does really happen, according to him? What really happens, according to Dennett, is that we have stimulus inputs, such as the pressure on your skin in my experiment, and we have dispositions to behavior, reactive dispositions, as he calls them." Unquote. Dennett argues that we are essentially complex machines. We have inputs and various internal functions, and then outputs, just like a computer program. This is a really odd argument, isn't it? As a materialist and a scientist, I would totally understand this line of reasoning. There's just one catch, though, and it's a doozy. I have subjective experiences. It's as if Daniel Dennett is an AI visitor from another planet which is studying human behavior and culture. 
it has no subjective experience of its own, and since it believes that human behavior can be fully explained in terms of neural function, it is perplexed that certain people keep carrying on about this thing called consciousness. Naturally, it concludes that the people are confused in some way. They are saying things like, I think, therefore I am. The silly creatures think they have feelings and thoughts. Don't they know they are zombies? I shall have to educate them on the subject. A computer program can be made to have dispositional states. As the program runs, certain things occur that modify how the program will continue to be carried out. Inanimate objects of all sorts can have dispositional states. Remember, all that is meant by a disposition is a tendency to react or behave in response to a stimulus that has something to do with its history. In our case, learning and memory make continuous microscopic changes in neurons and their connections. These dispositions matter to us a lot. Everything you know and everything you have ever experienced is dependent on these microscopic changes in your brain. You are not thinking about your mother right now. Well, now you are, aren't you? Nevertheless, all of your memories and thoughts and feelings about your mother are there for you in the event that they are called upon. Your personality is also a feature of microscopic neural characteristics which make you the person you are. Some of these are due to your genetics or to the quantity of hormones of various kinds to which you were exposed as an infant. Others are a matter of experiences that you've had, and once again, the resultant hormones and epigenetic outcomes of those experiences. All of it is physical, one way or the other. When you are unconscious, you do not exist, as we have talked about before. You are a conscious mind, not a human body. You are an emergent property of certain functions of the human body. When they are present, so are you. But in an important sense, your memories and your personal tendencies are still present when you are not. As long as the brain goes on living and relatively unchanged, the factors that make you who you are, or at least who you think you are, are preserved. When you awaken, they are influencing your present experience, but you are nothing more than the present. The, dis the dispositions are features of the brain. The memories are features of the brain. They are the causes of your conscious content, not the other way around. Some of our dispositions are conditional, and temporary consequences of mood or illness. Notice that we do not consider those conditions to be ourselves. We act as though they are something outside of us, which of course they are. Personality and cognitive capacity, evidence shows, are pretty stable psychological characteristics, but they are not your stable characteristics. They are stable characteristics of the brain from which you emerge. The idea of consciousness outlasting the death of the brain has some considerations that few seem to realize. Everything that you think of as consciousness is not necessarily so. The memories, they are physical features of the network. The values, they are physical features of the network. The habits, they are physical features of the network. The only thing that is truly you is the point of view. Whatever comes into view is what you experience. What are you when there is nothing to view? Nothing. 